you're syncing up and tuning in to the Lending Link Podcast, powered by GDS Link, where the modern-day lender can dive deeper into the future of data, decisioning, and credit risk solutions. Welcome to the show, everyone. I'm your host, Rich Altman, and today we're syncing up with GDS Link's Gary Byrne, who leads our UK business team. On this episode, Gary and I are discussing a wide range of topics from the value of technology within financial services, including the current state of UK's economic climate to what a successful tech partner looks like and so much more. But first, please head over to GDS Link's LinkedIn and Twitter pages at GDS Link and hit those like and follow buttons. And be sure to subscribe to The Lending Link on Apple's podcast, Spotify, or wherever you prefer to listen to your podcast. As I shared, I am being joined today by my colleague, Gary Byrne. Gary joined GDS in June of this year with over 25 years of experience within the credit risk decision management sector with a focus on sales and consulting related to decisioning technology and its use across the full credit lifecycle of a customer, including marketing, originations, account management, and collection. Gary's experience includes working for TransUnion and Fair Isaacs and several other companies who support this industry. All right now, let's get synced with GDS Link. Good morning, Gary, and welcome. Hey, thanks, Rich. Great pleasure to speak with you. Yeah, thanks for joining me today. Uh, where am I talking to you? So yeah, I'm in uh, I'm in um, God's own country in uh, in Yorkshire, in the heart of England. Just coming into what should be the early stages of winter, but it's still mild enough here that I, I look from my office window and see grown men walking around in short sleeve shirts and trousers. And so, yeah, it's uh, the weather's a little bit crazy right now. Yeah, we're having uh, strange weather here in the States as well. I think it's supposed to be uh, 80 tomorrow for us here in uh, Atlanta, Georgia, where I'm based. So, Gary, uh, before we uh, kind of dive into the business, I always uh, like to start with one personal question for my uh, guest. I understand you're an avid bicyclist and have completed a few triathlons. How long have you been doing this? And can you share what type of training regimen you follow to get ready for a triathlon? And how do you feel that maybe you apply some of these same disciplines into your work life? Oh, wow, that's a that's a great question, and that I should start by apologising to any of uh, anybody that what I would call true triathletes listening to this to, to paint myself as a triathlete is it, it brings a degree of um, artistic license. So I do enjoy it. I think the training is pretty varied. I'm a frustrated soccer, football player, rugby player at heart. I had to retrain myself to get on a bike, and I'm not really built for that game. But uh, I really enjoy it. The, the training's varied and mixed up, and, and with uh, when you're carrying. Injuries at my age of life, you can mix it up nice going for a swim or a run or, or jumping on the bike. So, yeah, I'd highly recommend anybody that's into the sports and activities to, to give it a shot. It's, it's really great training, great atmosphere at the events and the races. The triathlon have, have really nailed it and been able to attract lots of different age groups and disciplines and distances to the event. So, it's yes, it's great to be part of it. I, I don't do a great deal of triathlons. I've, I've done one this year. Um, I did it. I might have another one booked in one or two early next year but yeah again a little bit of artistic license calling me a triathlete i think okay how do you maybe apply some of those disciplines uh, that you have being a, a quasi triathlete into your work life yeah it's interesting so i think it, it lends itself a little bit right with a bit of a reach i think when you come into the technology business and what and what we do i think we've got a you know our, our place is that we have one really highly flexible scalable powerful solution that can do a myriad of things and fix a myriad of uh, problems for customers and and you've got to kind of be pretty flexible in your approach and be able to move left and right pretty dynamically to to really offer best value and help to clients 
And I guess in, in the, if we liken that to the triathlon world, it's it's pretty similar, right? With when you certainly when you get to my age and the, I say the injuries that you carry in the weather here in the UK flexes up and down. So you've always got to be reasonably flexible in how you approach your training and how you the timing of training as well, when you can fit that in around your work-life balance and around your, your work, heavy work commitments, et cetera. So a little bit of a reach, Rich, but I think there's some things we can grasp there. Okay, well, let's get down to business. You know, you're certainly somebody with a long tenure in the credit industry, uh, over 25 years. When you think about changes that you've seen, one of our last podcasts with Kevin Moss, he and I jointly have about 80 years in the industry, but, you know, certainly 25 years is a long time. You know, when you think about some of the changes that you've seen that really stand out in your mind, maybe kind of share with the audience, uh, you know, some thoughts that come to, to your head. Great question. And what, what the audience don't have the uh, the benefit of seeing, Rich, is I, I can see you over the camera, right? And I, I can vouch for your your part in those 80 years of experience. So. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, the changes are really interesting, I think principally and fundamentally in some angles there's not been a great deal of change you know the way that uh, financial services are certainly any financial services customer or client of ours or in the industry that's been around for probably five seven years plus kind of approaches risk and credit risk and life cycle decision pretty much the same as we did 20 years ago right the technology's yeah. changed and when i started predominantly kind of started to learn my train at a bank called first direct in the uk which was the first telephone bank in the UK. Before then, it was all all branch, walking into your branch and traditional banking. And First Direct came along and, and really changed the changed the mindset a lot there. And we see that kind of change in dynamic structure of changing of operations and principles. It's pretty much the new normal now, right? That with digitalization. But mm -hmm. back then, it was, it was it was quite a big deal. But even then, the principles of of what we were focused on. So customer first, uh, putting the customer at the heart of the decision, and then kind of customer level decision and customer level account and customer management and collections was was really important. And those principles remain today. But the I guess the, the major changes for me is as we look through that, there was talk for a long, long time about the oncoming onslaught of big data. It was pretty much bureau driven. And that was you know, it's either internal or, or just bureau data. And we had to um, dig trenches and lay cables to get access to that data. And now we're living in that, right? We just seem to have right. dropped into that and not talked about it too much, but we live in big data now. It's not so much, it's very easy to get access to it. It's not so much that you've got to, you know, look around and try and find the data that might be valuable to you. It's actually, there's a lot of data that's valuable to you. The, the skill is identifying it, which stuff is most valuable and you can make value out of it in a, in a, in a millisecond in the time that you're able to make that decision. So the speed and expectations of the, of the market has, has changed and that's driven some really, really cool enhancements and cool expectations and, and forcing the financial services industry to go along with it. I think yeah. predominantly speed, the fact that we're living in big data and the expectations of kind of like Gen, Gen Z coming through are having some real positive impacts on where we're going. Good. Well, thanks for that. And I know we'll be talking more about data uh, later on. On the news yesterday, that the Bank of England warned the UK is facing its longest recession since records began. Yeah. It just raised interest rates again, as we did here in the U.S., but the most in the last 33 years. And the Bank of England warned, right, that the U.K. is facing, and I'll quote, very challenging times, a two-year slump with unemployment nearly doubling by 2025 to as high as 6.5%. You know, with inflation hitting consumers, not only, uh, you know, you talk about the underserved and underbanked, inflation's hitting across all credit classes today. I don't have the exact stats in front of me, but I know when I had the, um, I think it was a podcast with uh, either Kevin or, or Dan, and I encourage uh, our listeners to go back and listen to those if they haven't. 
but even people in the U.S. making over $100,000 a year are struggling with a large number claiming to be living paycheck to paycheck, and I'm sure it's the same in the U.K. So kind of coming back to some of the points you were talking about, what are some of the steps that you feel lenders should be taking today for to account for how inflation is impacting consumers' ability to pay? And what role can data analytics and, and technology bring to the table for them to you know, try to, as you say, continue to lending. We don't want source of credit to totally dry up, but certainly there's going to be a pullback. But you know, how do they how do they do this in in a smarter way when uh, things are really changing rapidly for these consumers, and it's going to get worse. I mean, it really is, right? It, you know, working in risk as I have for a while, uh, Rich, and you have. You know, one thing that you would generally look to do is look at the past to try and identify where the where things are going to go in the future. That's a generally not a bad way of kind of predicting how these things are going to play out. The future here in the UK, and I think globally as well, is one of volatility and uncertainty. And I think that volatility and uncertainty is the new future, right? I, mm -hmm. I can't see a situation beyond the next, certainly beyond the next 18 months, two years, probably three to five years in the UK, where it's just going to be going to be really volatile. It's going to be really uncertain right across the board. And part of that is the speed of the global market and how something can happen as an example, like the war that's happening in Europe and the almost immediate impact that has not just on the UK economy, but on individuals in the UK with things like the cost of living crisis and the cost of utilities. And that kind of cost of utilities hit the UK well before it needed to hit the UK, really, just because the, the, the communications and the markets reacted so quickly to what was happening there. So I think what needs to happen is I think the, the speed of decision needs to, the speed of decision has always been prominent, but the type of data that you're using to make that decision needs to be relevant and needs to be on point. And, and we're getting very close to near real-time decisions, but looking at the type of data that you're using to make those decisions. And I think the traditional risk data that's provided by the three bureaus in the UK is obviously very powerful for, for a lot of cases. But when you're looking at making decisions based on such volatility, I think you need, we need to be moving more to transactional-based data and things like open banking data. And open banking, I would say, probably like here as the rest of the world, I think it's got huge potential to really transform uh, financial services and banking. I don't think it's hit anywhere near its potential yet. I think it, it needs to be adopted quicker across, across the life cycle. And the, the potential for bringing that in and bringing transactional data in and being able to rapidly an analyze that today Gary's in good shape, but tomorrow he's, he's not. And the, uh, is, you know, far outweighs the traditional methods of, of scoring month to month and waiting for events to hit the account. And that's backed up by data that we're seeing coming out on the, in the UK credit card market, where we're seeing over the last uh, six to nine months, the, you know, one payment delinquency is actually goes up by 3% and it goes down by 1% and it goes up by 2% and down by 3%. And it, it, it looks a little bit unstably, unstably stable, if that makes sense. Yeah. It's not, it's not necessarily climbing badly, but it's not just kind of sitting at uh, at recognized points. But then if you look at two to three months delinquent, those numbers are kind of gradually and, and if not rapidly going through the roof. The skill to this is bringing the stats around that and bringing the decision around that and when to react in quicker. And that's going to be led by transaction data. And that's really, really difficult for, for a lot of providers in the UK to get hold of today and to make value out of quickly because the systems and platforms that they've got just don't allow for the AI models required to be able to make the decisions rapid enough or even get the data in to be able to operationalize it uh, into their existing platforms because they've built a significant amount of legacy. Um, right. so they're, not, they're not easy decisions to solve for. What you're talking about, right, is really the ability to implement an adaptive control type system, right, that yeah. really can uh, help better manage across the full credit lifecycle. You talked about that consumers that are kind of bouncing around in maybe that 30 
and 60-day bucket. Can you kind of give some thoughts on how lenders may uh, really leverage technology as that customer does age out? What are some of your thoughts on how technology that not only can be used for originations, but can be effectively leveraged across that full credit life cycle? Just having a little smile to myself, as you rightly call this adaptive control. When I was at uh, at FICO, maybe 15, 16 years, we talked heavily, right? That was one of the buzzwords around adaptive control and how, how technology could be leveraged to do exactly what we're talking about today with, with the introduction of cloud-based banking and, and what we can do with the technology and the platform. We don't need to reinvent the wheel on what adaptive control means. We just need to go back and implement it. And for me, exactly. that means doing just that. It's taking... It's taking the technology that's available to you out there, which is pretty light touch. And, you know, I say building into these platforms now is, is, is relatively simple through APIs, but it's the design of that that's really important. And you get that design framework right up front and you build this intelligence-based orchestration layer and hang off the bottom of that reusable framework of microservices that can be used at any point across the lifecycle. And when you start drilling into that, it's, you start to allow yourself to actually probably redefine what originations mean and what account and customer management mean and what collections mean and how, and how you should design a solution that's fit for the life cycle rather than building an originations platform, then an account management platform, and then a collections platform. And it also enables you as well if you to, to rapidly ingest and get value out of the latest and greatest data that's out there now. Now, when you bring that data in, of course, you've got to get value out of it and use it. And, and that you know, the technology needs to lend itself to AI and ML techniques. Again, things that have been talked about for some time, but I don't think used anywhere near to their full potential. But the scale of big data, the speed of decision that needs to be made, the, the weight of the, the data that's going to come down the pipe that needs to be shuffled and, and um, standardized and pushed through models to get value out of in a split second. You know, you, you, the traditional scoring methods aren't going to do that. So I think getting best use out of the technology and really revisiting the design process around that is, is hugely important. Exactly. And also, because you can use that same technology, right, that you use for originations, you know, from a uh, return on investment for that lender mm. uh, to be able to leverage that same platform across the full credit lifecycle uh, helps further justify bringing in technology like ours and others. So, um, you know, we talked about, you know, I think open banking and how open banking has really changed a lot of the landscape and lending, certainly company here in the, in, the, in the U.S. pedal, you know, they talked about how they were able to approve probably about 35% more consumers uh, by using uh, open banking data. Are you seeing uh, the same rate of adoption in the U.K. or would you say it's still more in, in maybe in the infancy compared to the U.S. where I think it's been heavily, heavily adopted? My view and what we're seeing on our side is it's it's massively under-adopted, right? I think it's it's not been used, uh, even those that have adopted it, I don't think are using it anywhere near the full potential. I think there's still quite a lot of assessment going on of, of how to how and best to integrate that data into traditional scoring methods and, and in the life cycle as well, and when and where to get best value out of it. I think there's a fundamental shift that needs to happen, and it's probably going to be driven by the massive economic shift that's happening in the UK now. Financial services don't have the time to wait for credit data to refresh. They just don't have the time. And so, you know, the, the open banking and transactional data um, experts and data sources that are out there now in the UK are ready to go and they need to be adopted. All the analysis has been done. All the retros have been done. Technology is there to enable it. I think it's fair to say that for a lot of organizations that, um, that probably what the what's slowing down adoption is legacy. I, I think legacy is a killer, right? And I think yeah. anybody that's been in business here in the UK for 
certainly five plus years has probably built a bunch of legacy that's no longer kind of fit for purpose. It makes it really difficult to entirely reshape your operation and think about things holistically on how better to serve your existing customer base or to keep or to prevent the uh, you know the black swan from coming in and, and taking your business altogether. And it, it's real difficult to do that. But I think the, the adoption of it has to has to increase. And it, if I think anybody that doesn't start looking at transaction data to to really transform the customer experience and speed of speed of change is, is going to be left behind. Yeah, you know, when we talk about the full credit lifecycle, one of the things that where I think there's a good opportunity for lenders with open banking as well is not just in the originations where it's been playing more heavily. But when we think about collections and we think about settlement, right? So clearly more and more as consumers are struggling, lenders are probably going to be looking at an increase in the number of consumers they they might be talking about settlement. And I think that's a perfect place where you can say to that consumer, yes, we're willing to discuss a settlement with you. But if you want to do that, we need you to permission yourself into your banking data so we can look at that and get a more holistic view and, and kind of, once again, using analytics you know, from a lender perspective, it's, it's kind of about not leaving money on the table, right? Not offering a, a 70% settlement maybe when you should only be offering 30% settlement. Yeah. And I think collections is a real interesting play. I think it's a it's a, a rapidly changing environment. And um, I think what needs to happen in collections personally is that the, the definition of collections needs to be looked at, cradle to grave, really. I think there's a lot more can be done but the best lenders in the UK do a lot more on the pre-delinquency early collection side. And then when they start to introduce transactional data into that, effectively, they know well before I do whether I'm going to hit financial difficulties or not and what type of collections customer I'm likely to be. Am I one that, that can pay but won't pay or can pay and, and will pay or won't pay? But, you know, right. how, how does this, how, how are they going to, how are they going to balance all this stuff out? And the quicker they get that view of that, the quicker they, they make the call to the client, to the customer, the more likely they are to to get the share of wallet, right? To get the payment plans in place, but they, they do it in a way that's not kind of collections, it's account management, bring it forward with that transaction data. They've got to be in a better place. Right. You mentioned data is king and a lot of our audience today is not as familiar with the UK market landscape uh, as it relates to data bureaus. At GDS, through our Medellica platform and our data exchange, we've integrated with, I think it's almost over a hundred third-party data bureaus in the US. Mm. It's, it's, it's staggering. In fact, uh, I know when we uh, when we're doing a, a sales presentation and we show our our opportunities, the slide, I think their eyes kind of pop out of their head, like, "Oh my <laughs> God, I didn't know these all these data bureaus were out there." Is it similar in the UK? Have you seen explosive growth on the number of data bureaus bringing solutions around ID, income verification, credit, both on the prime and, and subprime? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, traditionally, uh, and it's still the same in the UK. I think that the you know the big data hitters are the are the three credit bureaus, and a couple of them in particular have done a, a real good job of kind of bringing innovative products to the market, really, and trying to refresh what that relationship between financial services and banks and the credit bureau should look like, right? So not just your standard bureau data, but different spins on um, affordability and and propensity and collections and a, and a bunch of other things. So the bureaus are doing a quite a good job of filling that market and particularly in the fraud space as well. But I would say over the last, certainly over the last three, three to five years, the the number of new data providers that are, that are coming to the market, I think this has been driven, driven in my mind by the introduction probably of open banking over the last, you know, over a longer time scale and seeing the influence that and the potential that that could have to the UK market has probably spun off a lot of much needed conversation around what data is really valuable when we're, when we're making decisions about customers and and who can hold that data and, and how do we get access to that data? And access, again, is a, is a huge point, right? So 
the technology today lends itself to access a bunch of data, any data really rapidly through APIs. And the technology can, if you build this reusable framework, you can build a single data hub access point and have a data hub partner that can access all this data on your behalf, really. And more and more, there's new data providers coming on board, looking at you know the cracks and of, of what the traditional lenders are are providing so people like data on demand and a few others uh, a lot of them in and out of yorkshire as well which it's uh, an exciting time if you were talking to a lender that's uh, maybe pushing out an rfp for a new risk management platform and you were helping them design and, and write up that rfp you know what are some of the key functional requirements that you would be laying into that rfp that our audience uh, who maybe is thinking about replacing their existing legacy stack are key things that they need to consider I think there's a couple of parts to this. I think first thing is that clients don't replace their full legacy stack every every year, right? It's a major operation. And I think there's a lot they can be doing around around the edges of it. And, and my answer is pretty much going to go two ways here, focusing on, on legacy. And what a lot of clients do is look at replacing the stack. They realize that they've, they've got some legacy. It's not got the flexibility, the scalability, the reusability, but it's, it's become too costly. It's on-prem. They want to move to the cloud. Whatever it may be, they want to remove that stack. Now, removing that stack can take anything from the decision to do that, to get the funding from that, the sponsorship internally, to line up all the players that, need it, that are needed to do that, to go to RFP, and then go through the projects can be you know anything from probably tw- minimum 12 months out to three, four years worth of of engagement and the investment around that, as we know, is significant. In the interim, there's lots they can be doing around that. And what a lot of clients do is build more legacy. They just continue to add on to the legacy and that's makes it more and more difficult to replace, right? So I guess up front, whilst they're thinking about the RFPs and whilst they're thinking about the stack is don't, don't build legacy around legacy, right? Always be future thinking as much as you can. And even with the small changes that you're making, try and make them future-proof, try and use the latest and greatest technologies that are out there to, to circumnavigate the legacy that you've got in place because you'll get some significant benefits in that. And a lot of time, those, those workaround benefits will pay for the project to replace the, the big iron that, you, that you're struggling with. I guess by way of a features functionality and what you should be looking at, it's about reusability for me. And it's about, it's the cliche of making sure that when you buy a solution today, it's as much possible, it's, it's future-proof as possible. And that, you know, in, a, in, a, in an environment where it's real volatile and everything's changing rapidly, I think we're on our third prime minister now in as many weeks. So, you know, it's, um, it's not easy to be future-proof if you build things internally, if you build things on-premise, on iron yourself. The, the budget to get that budget and to secure that and you bring in the latest and greatest technology and you put it on your own technology stack the operation that you'll build around that to maintain it and to take it forward will be significant and you'll be constantly adding to that to replace that and take it out you're going to again be looking at that 12 to 4 year time scale so use the use the services that are available and out there use cloud based services whether you're your own or a vendors and go through a heavy period of design make sure that you don't rush to market, right? You need to slow down to get there a little bit quicker, I think, and make sure that you go through a real design phase that allows you as much as possible to design an intelligent orchestration and architectural layer that that will address the fact that tomorrow may be different and new data may need to come in and AI models may change. I think those are the key things for me, which is to use the technology that's available today. Don't build more legacy and as much as possible, think, you know, keep in your mind that it, it, things are going to change and change is the new normal. And you need to have a design framework in place that, it, that it's not going to slow you down. 
Well, great. Well, Gary, I think this has been a, a very informative conversation. I, I hope our audience uh, picks up some key talking points from us. So just a couple, maybe more personal questions uh, before we wrap up. Let me ask you if you were, uh, if you were uh, meeting with a rising university senior who was uh, thinking about upcoming career choices, you know, what would you tell, tell them about the financial services industry and why you think it would be a good career choice for them? Oh, wow. I think when you're working what we do, Rich, and you're at a dinner party and then you go around the table and, you, you know, you sat next to the, the brain surgeon and the engineer and the, and the, the, the butcher and whatever else, right? It's um, traditionally, it's not been a particularly exciting place, right? And, it, and, you know, who knows? You may get the odd drink thrown if you're in the middle of a banking crisis, but <laughs> I, I don't think there's a more exciting time to be involved in what we do. I think the changing face of financial services, it, it's... It's front of mind for everything, particularly, I'm sure it is globally, but particularly here in the UK, right? It's the headline, it's headline news um, around cost of living crisis and economics and, and politics around that. And I think the influence that we can have on, on helping financial services organizations come to market and come to, come to help people and shape the market that's, that's in, in my mind, is, is fairer for society. Um, and fairer for uh, the financial services outlook has has never been better. If your play is is that excitement, or it is the you want to be on the bleeding edge of technology, or um, or solution framework and integration and design, or or even people, I think I think working in our space is a is a really at last it's a really exciting place to be. And I, I don't mind. I, I kind of look forward to when the the you know the uh, I get my nod at the dinner table and I get to tell people what I do. Hey, well, you know, last thing uh, you mentioned helping people. So I'm going to kind of give you a little plug here. I was looking at your LinkedIn profile and I uh, see that you're on the board of a trustees for the uh, Pontefract Food Bank in West Yorkshire. Can you share a little bit about what their mission is and, uh, you know, why you decided to get involved? Thanks, Rich. Yeah. Without getting overly political, food banks in, um, in the UK, uh, it's a shameful situation, right? One of the most wealthy Western European countries. And we've got thousands of food banks here in the UK. And what we're seeing and what we've been warned of by our trust group, the Trussell Trust, is to prepare ourselves for a tsunami of poverty. And that's just a shameful situation to be in in a, situ in a, in a country like the UK. What the food bank, our mission statement at the food bank is that we shouldn't need food banks, right? We're, we're not in the market of, of growing a food bank empire. But it's just about, you know, and what we're seeing, it kind of lends right back to the beginning of the conversation where we're seeing more and more people really are going to be impacted by the global economics of the next couple of years. And, you know, that's not your, that's not the people, that's not the homeless people. That's not people that you, you, you may pigeonhole as might be needing this. That could be your neighbor. That could be you. Right. And people on, on very good salaries that suddenly find themselves are not able to, to feed themselves or their families. And it's a great thing to be part of. It's really fulfilling. I would urge anybody to get involved in the local communities and, I honestly don't do a great deal. Uh, you know, there's a lot of outstanding uh, volunteers that do the grunt of the work, but it's it's unfortunately a much needed part of society in the UK today. Thanks for sharing and, and thanks for investing your time in that. This is uh, Rich Alterman uh, wrapping up today. We've been talking to Gary Byrne, who heads up the UK business team for GDS Link. Once again, both Gary and I hope you uh, enjoyed our podcast this afternoon and that you walk away with a couple of points that you could bring back to your day-to-day -day jobs. And we look forward to having you join us for other podcasts. Thank you and uh, make it a great day.